Picking up from our last episode, here's the rest of our interview with researchers from the World Bank on the malice that air pollution continues to pose for South Asia and their prescriptions to develop a coherent action plan. So since both of you obviously worked extensively on air quality management, not only in the South Asian region, but obviously also with the rest of the world, I'm sure you'd have various examples of successful or failed air quality management practices in the rest of the world that could potentially be applied to South Asia. So are there any specific comparisons that you made in the report? So comparisons in that sense. And on the flip side, are there any lessons from, let's say, not as successful air quality management practices from the rest of the world that we can learn from when we're enacting successful practice here in South Asia? Yeah, I, I think that if 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 you look at the air quality management around the world over the last 30, 40, 50 years and, and see what can South Asia really gain from these international experiences. And, and you know, we are really talking about four large regions. We had the North America, the European, the China, the India, South Asia context. You know, that's that's the four main players. And I think one is to speak to what we already had discussed here is that by applying a regional airshed approach from the beginning you can save a lot of financial resources and you can save time we had the 40 years anniversary of the um, convention for long-range transboundary or air pollution for a couple of years ago and they got the question, what could you do different? How could, what would you have done different if you had these 40 years again? And the response was, we would have started from the regional level and zoomed in on the cities. But what we did was that we started with the cities and urban areas, and then we zoomed out. If we had started up there, we would have saved a lot of time, we would have saved human lives, and we would have saved costs. And this is, you know, something that we try and try and try to tell all the counterparts in South Asia. And they are getting there. The, the, the mindset shifts are changing. So that, that's one thing. A second thing is, until now, a lot of the focus in air quality management in South Asia, like it was in the other regions we are referring to earlier, what we are referring to as primary particle pollution. That is what comes out of the emission sources as particles. So from the industries, from the power plants, diesel emission from the transportation and so on, part of the household um, sources and so on. But about 50%, 40, 50, 55%, both local research and overall research, and what we see from the other region, is that about 50% of the sources of the particles that you breathe comes from reactions of gases that creates what we are referring to as secondary particles. So ammonia emissions from agriculture sources reacts with um, sulfur dioxide and sources and NOx sources from industry, transport, and so on and so on. So you need to put a policy in place that also address these reactions of the gases over a large geographic area. 
And that has been very much neglected in South Asia until now, but it's getting there. So this is, I think, another very important lesson. A third lesson is that we are referring to something we are referring as scientific air quality management, that you really understand the sources and you figure out which sources over a large scale are you going to address in order to improve the air quality. So I think that if you are taking these steps, three steps, doing the airshed, addressing both the secondary and the primary are, sources and do scientific air quality management, you are going to do well in South Asia. And they are getting there. Just to add to some of your science, very sort of concise three steps towards uh, improving air quality in South Asia. I think another important point to sort of ponder upon is the importance of the of, of sort of targeting multiple sources of air pollution, right? not just looking to international experiences, but even from experiences within the region. For Let's talk about Delhi, for example, which in the 1990s really revamped its sort of public transport sector by converting all sort of diesel engines to CNG, bringing in CNG being an early mover to improving sort of transport fuel, right? But because of sort of focusing on just a single source, you would not realize the overall benefits to air quality as much. Uh, so it's important that sort of states and cities don't get bogged down with a single source. Otherwise, there is plateauing of benefits and then have sort of higher levels of pollution generated as well. I think the other message here is uh, taking a cue from the experiences Jostein was sharing from Northern America and Europe that this really takes time, right? I mean, and there is no silver bullet. This takes time, this takes patience, this takes commitment from governments in the longer term. The Convention on the Long-Range Transport of Air Pollution that governs air quality in Europe has been in existence for more than 40 years. Uh, the California Air Resources Board, I think, is has been around for more than 50 years now. And so, so building up sort of the scientific acumen, the human resource is also, also really vital and having these institutions in place that can look at air quality management in the longer term is also very important. So it's not a one-off, uh, even if uh, regions in this uh, IGP area are able to pull down pollution by a, a certain degree in the next few years. The need to continue to invest in ensuring that these gains are not undone in the longer run. So I think that's also an important point to consider as we set out towards uh, achieving this 2030 vision and beyond as well. I think what many policymakers and analysts would have taken from your report, specifically in terms of the solution side, the recommendations that you propose, is the three-phase roadmap that you laid out. And I know this report has been, it's been out there for a while. There's been time for policymakers, for leaders to follow this advice. There have been, there's been obviously more recent developments to consider, but uh, in terms of the action plan that these, this three-phase reports proposed, we deal specifically firstly with the phase one, which is, it sounds to me more of like a preparatory sort of, where it, uh, where it uh, talks of the establishment of better monitoring policies of specific institutions to address air pollution and just build scientific capacity. Could you elaborate on what this phase one actually looks like, how this would work and whether it could work in line with the six different airshed approaches, the six different airshed regions that you listed out. So how kind of to supplement how your report works, how it all kind of leads in together with each other, how you would use the airshed wide approach 
institute phase one and what's the existing yeah. structure like in this area so yeah the first thing i think we want to say when you are referring to as phases three phases i think one thing that we discussed a lot in the group was should we define this as phases or should we like define them as priorities because when we say phases we basically <laughs> outline or suggest that you had to go through phase one before you move to phase two and before you move to phase three and so on in kind of in sequential order and and of course this is different from country to country and and we have actually built in a paragraph or a sentence there on 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 on, on illustrating this and and i think then we are dealing with the main countries in south asia not at least india you know, they are taking actions simultaneously and are running these in parallel in many ways. That's why we are probably a better concept here would be three priorities and that you run them in parallel. So to what you define as the first phase or the first priority related to the air quality management infrastructure and the technical capacity and also the administrative capacity to, to tackle air quality management. Yes, very much. We see it as a main gap that the current infrastructure, air quality management infrastructure, and we are referring to the ambient air quality monitoring, you know, all the monitoring stations, the, the 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 infrastructure to understand the sources, establish the emission inventories, and so on. That the current system is really focusing on establish this within cities again, within certain urban areas. If you look at the policies and the standards in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, the current one focused on how many monitoring stations do you need to have it in a city when it has such and such size and has such and such uh, density and so on and so on. What we say is that you need to change the paradigm here and rather focus on what do you need of an air quality management infrastructure within the airship because you need this information in order to develop your plans and in order to monitor the progress of the plans and so on and so on. So if you only have this infrastructure at present in some selected cities, you would neither be able to develop the good plans nor develop or fully understand the progress of the implementations. So that's why we say you need to move from, again, a city focus to an airshed-wide focus within these six airsheds that we have defined in the report, and particularly in the Indo-Gangetic plane. So that's one thing. And that has to be developed and basically to move from that AQM infrastructure that you at present have in some few urban city areas to the overall airshed. And it's equally important to understand the air quality and the sources out in the rural side and in the poor areas, in the low income areas and so on, as in some few selected cities. The second thing is that what we really have learned is that you need to do what we refer to as scientific air quality management. Scientific air quality management to get the full understanding of what you should do for your implementation. 
at present time, you have very good research institutes in South Asia. You have like the Indian Institute of Technology in Delhi, in Kanpur, in, in many cities and states in India. You have the Bangladesh, you have the University of Engineering and Technology, you have the very good institute in Islamabad for the climate impact study centers and so on, all very good institutions. But what you don't have is a collaboration between the institutions and somehow an establishment that can do this analytical work and, and support work, establish the, somehow the think tank to the government at an airshed and an international level in South Asia. That is not there today. And our strong recommendation is that you need to establish that so you also can do comprehensive airshed support to the governments. If you look at North America, Europe, China, you know, they have all built up that kind of think tank capacity that support the governments in scientific air quality management. You need to do that. So our recommendation, you need to do the same in South Asia. So that's some of the important recommendations from that first phase or that first priority. In the report, it's mentioned that there has been an overlap between air pollution and local poverty. How exactly does this overlap occur? And can this be the reason that makes air quality management a very, uh, very high up on the agenda of uh, national governments in South Asia? Okay, what basically was a little bit of a surprise finding for us when we started was that we realized basically through the research that the low income areas, in particular the Indo-Gangetic Plain, western part of Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, western part of, of West Bengal, at least the data we had access to, showed that the air pollution in these low income areas where as high is even not higher than in some of the urban areas. It was very contrary to our knowledge from the other regions that we have been working in. And why so? And I think this is somehow what, what we have explained, what Sayantan has explained through the high density and the contribution from the household cooking, from waste burning, and so on and so on. So, so there are certain dimensions of why this is so high. But we then realized really wow, here you have a situation where so and so many million people living under the poverty line has as high air pollution as in the urban areas, in, in, in the more well-off urban areas. So that was a finding for us, an important finding. Now, how does that impact somehow the prioritization of, of the programs and the policies? And that, that's your second part of the question. I would say it's a kind of a mixture there. When we look, we had hoped that somehow the federal government or the regional government, or somehow the, a regional setup, a coordination setup by the federal government would somehow increase the priority of these geographic areas because they are low income groups too. But I'm not sure, to be honest, we see that yet, but from our point of view as our organization, 
and also we see it from the development partners and i think we see it among the state partners i think we all see that this needs to be an additional important element that support programs and investments into the areas also because they have a low income status that's good but we are not fully there in designing the program and we are also you know trying to figure out how could we possibly perhaps generate through generation of funds in the more developed parts of the airshed so the indogandetic plain possibly transfer some resources to the low income groups in order to to compensate their economic situation in tackling air pollution and i think so you you know in 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 california and also Santan referred to the California Air Resource Board, they have, in fact, such a policy where I think about one third of the income, the fee income they have from air pollution is going also to the low income districts, as an example. And we are looking into that example also, whether that could be something that we could apply in the Indo-Gangetic Plain concept. So, for example, the more well-off, Haryana or Punjab, if we could draw some incomes that is being transferred to the low income districts and state, but we are not there yet. We are not there yet, but it's certainly something that we are working on. Uh, yes, and you put this very well. Uh, just to complement this, I think, yeah, I think the bottom line is that we must be mindful, policymakers must be mindful that the cost for reduction of air pollution must not be completely transferred onto this sort of poorer segment, right? Uh, that the uh, we must be must ensure that the consumption costs for this segment does not go up and has a detrimental effect on poverty elevation of, uh, efforts that are already in place. I mean, this is not in the report. It's an anecdote from sort of conversations we've had with policymakers. Uh, it's a very interesting one. But very interestingly, I think uh, counter sort of reasoning or rationale that we have come across sometimes in engagement with sort of people that we interact with in government and outside government is that people who use sort of unclean cooking sources, a lot of them are doing it because of the lack of affordability and accessibility, right? Uh, but it's also a fact that these people have been doing this for a long time. It's not that 20 years, 30 years or 40 years back, they used to use using cleaner sources of cooking, right? Or, or cleaner fuels. So we need to be mindful of that. And while it is in their own utmost interest and health benefit that they shift away from sort of this unclean cooking fuels, it has to be sort of balanced in a way that the burden of the shift does not all fall on their, back, on, on their backs. So it's an important, I think, issue and an important calibration of policy measures that need to be looked at by policymakers to make this transition as smooth as possible. Sections. Phase two of the action plan primarily describes a transition from polluting municipal processes such as cooking or waste management. Can you please describe how this would work? Yeah, the second priority for the second phase is basically where we have identified which actions, which measures need to be put in place that we don't see being a major focus in the countries today. And that is why we have emphasized 
for example, the clean cooking and the waste sector, the burning of waste, but also the agricultural sources, the, the, the large ammonia emitters that create secondary particles that have a limited focus. So we say you have to focus on these parts in addition to what you already have. So when we just take the, the, the cooking as an example, also because it's it's probably as the most important in many ways, in, in large part, not at least of the Indo-Gargetic plane, is that we have, as Sayantan described, we have this LPG scheme, so this Ujvala scheme that has been a universal scheme in India over the last seven, eight, nine years to give all households in India LPG, so with the intention of giving them clean cooking facilities so they can get rid of the biomass burning and coal use and so on. Now, what we have described is that the segments, the large segments of hundreds of millions of people in, in tens of millions of households is that they cannot afford the cylinders that is to be purchased in order to run the LPG setup that they have installed in their in their homes. So therefore, we have to somehow come up with an alternative scheme because we don't see that the economic development level in the lowest income segments in the Indo-Gangetic plane, for example, will develop so much over the next five to 10 years where they will afford to buy, for example, the cylinders. So therefore we say you need to come up with an alternative mechanism of lower income solutions that is not part or was not part of the Ujvala scheme, but where you need to come in with lower, let's say, solar run, new cleaner cooking facilities. That is, let's say, that you can invest to just a quarter or one third of the investments that you had in, in the Udvali LPG scheme. So that's where we somehow need to develop new technologies and new investment schemes in order to enable the low income groups to afford this. So there we somehow also need to go through the kind of the mindset shift on the government side and among the politicians that maybe for certain segments, you have to come up with lower cost solutions that was outlined in the Ujvala scheme. And through the good discussions we have and that Sayantan and I have now had with several of the states, we learn that in some states, they somehow are thinking along our lines. In some states, we have still to do some work to come up with alternative schemes. But to your question, what do we do? We need to develop large scale new schemes that is more affordable compared to the schemes that have been applied at large scale until now. So under the set of priorities, which was called in the report as phase three, to me, this was, it seemed to me at least mm -hmm. the most exciting and the most radical because essentially what it proposes from my understanding of it is to integrate air quality management into mainstream governance and also mobilizing finance to make this work. So for me, that was the most 
it was the most action oriented it was the most well it was the most exciting so can you mm-hmm. talk a bit about this set of priorities and how it would work and also i know you've already spoken about the differentiated implementation in different regions different cities in south asia but are there any examples of cities of regions which you think are well poised or ready to take on these sort of third list of priorities this actual action in terms of mobilizing finance and instituting equity management governance policy proposals are there any positive examples you can quote in this regard that would be great as well yeah i i think and and here i think in many ways that that india to be fair is a kind of leader in south asia in coming up with innovative finance approaches take for example one thing that we worked on extensively for 2 3 years ago is to try to influence the 15th finance commission you know they have this five year finance commission sets up in india where they take tax income and reallocate them for several purposes out to the states and we worked very closely with the 15th finance commission the design stage they had back in 2000 2001 for a five year program to 2001 22 to 2025 26 where they develop grants to be provided according to the improvement in air quality in the largest cities 1 million plus cities in in india and they put in place a scheme that impressed us actually quite a lot is that you would mobilize you would provide a funds based upon the improvement in air quality that you could show in your respective city over the last year or the last two years or the last three years you know so you somehow link together the provision of grant funding from the government into the cities so they are referring to as performance based funding so they put in place a program of 1.6 billion that they have at current stage now what we had described you know is that a lot of the pollution sources are outside the large cities perhaps more than 50 60% and so on are outside are out in the rural areas out in the suburban areas and coming in from neighboring sort and so on so you somehow need to put in place them a system where you provide funding not only to the cities but to the larger entities out in the rural areas out into the large urban agglomerations and so on so what we are thinking about is really to try to develop a funding mechanism where we reach out to the larger geographic areas through the funding that is provided through the government so that's one thing a second thing is that we have our own funding also that is very much based upon performance from actually achieving output so that's a main funding mechanism we have so in over humble um chance of in improving the air quality that is also a main message we have that we try to allocate over resources to the partners particularly in the states that is linked to achieving outputs in the implementation of their respective program so move from investment investing in the inputs to basically allocating the resources 
based upon when you achieve results, both in the government's own schemes and what we are providing here. Then, of course, you have a lot of taxation policies that, that you could work extensively on that stimulate you know, the investments in, in, in industries and in, in power plants and so on to reduce the cost, the investment cost that you get returns if you make these and these investments in desulfurization, de-dust, de-nox, particulate matter reduction equipment, scrubbers and so on that you get a higher share of the investments from actually making the installations and improving the air quality or, or, or reducing your emissions. So we see a number of kind of subsidy policies that could be further advanced. We have already spoken here also to taxation policies that could you know, transfer incomes from this from districts to other districts from states between the states and so on so it's a number of what we see incitaments that can be used to stimulate a new schemes and new technologies and we also have very interestingly where where actually india with the gujarat province started on an emission trading scheme where they started to trade in particulate matter or reduction in particulate matter emissions. While in Europe and North America, you know, it has been a lot of focus and in China on trading the greenhouse gas emissions, India actually started to pioneer this in Gujarat. And we have now a number of, the, of dialogues, discussions between the Indo-Gangetic Plain states, Uttar Pradesh in particular, where we you know, consider, can we use similar schemes in trading in particulate matter emission reduction schemes between sectors and which sectors, which industries would be most likely to undertake such, such schemes. So that, that's some of the examples that we are considering in the third priority. There. And again, we are already in the middle of it. It's not something, a phase that we will do in the future. Yeah, that's, I think, a really comprehensive account of all options on the table that we're considering at the moment, or uh, region, the region should consider in terms of getting access to greater private sector and public sector capital to invest in air quality. Another sort of little element that I also wanted to bring in here, and we've been discussing this concept of convergence of funds, right? So while air quality is sort of a issue we often talk about as a standalone issue, but it really is a confluence again of a number of different sectors and different areas, right? So it's very important to understand the overall allocations that a state, for example, has made on different sectors or different topics that contribute to air pollution reduction. For example, investments in electric vehicles, which are a big uh, sort of area right, right now for India, uh, would naturally have benefits for air pollution reduction, right? So how do you ensure that funds that are uh, used for electric vehicle augmentation in the country is also seen as something that pro uh, that provides more fuel to sort of reducing air pollution? So to converge sort of various government allocations under the air quality umbrella is also an important I think, exercise to do for uh, region, for, for states and cities in the region to understand what they have with them to adequately tackle this issue. And if still there are finance gaps 
what are the avenues then they can look at? Uh, like your time uh, mentioned, there could be a number of financial uh, sort of instruments that they can adopt. Uh, they can also be sort of uh, capital support from development finance institutions, et cetera, that they can look at. So it's very important, I think, for government entities in the region to understand what they have at their disposal. So to do sort of an exercise to understand the expenditures that are already out there that have a positive impact on air pollution reduction uh, needs to be done as as an important sort of exercise to understand uh, the scope that they already have and the gap that they need to fill. Another aspect I was hoping the two of you could address is this relation between air quality management and climate action. Now, I don't know if this is a fallacy that most people assume, but most people tend to think that the two problems go hand in hand and in turn, by extension, solutions to the two will be similar. So are there any synergies or trade-offs between national strategies for all of these countries on climate change and air quality management? Or are there any trade-offs between the two? And if so, have you addressed these in your report? I think the report touches upon this pretty explicitly, right? Uh, I think there are projections that are made in the report that show that carbon dioxide, black carbon, and methane, three climate warming gases, have a potential to be reduced by taking action on air pollution. I think the numbers are something like 20% for carbon dioxide. If we are to reach this clean air scenario that Jostein has spelled out earlier, up to 2030, there's a potential to reduce carbon dioxide by about 20%, methane by about 25 to 30%. And then we see black carbon being sort of uh, reduced by around 80% if sort of countries and states in the region are able to reach that clean air vision of reaching 35 micrograms per meter cube particulate matter. So there are clearly strong linkages between uh, air pollution action and climate change, and it has to be really an integrated approach to bring out benefits from both areas together. And we work extensively on this. So when we now are developing the state action plans and the region, not at least the regional plan for Indo-Gangetic Plain, the whole area that we were describing, you know, we are also there building in what the climate co-benefits, particularly in the form of black carbon and methane, but also on CO2, will be through implementation of the policies and the programs that we are developing together with our Indian and, and, and the other country partners. So it's very much built in here but we are somehow continuously working on these estimations that Sayantan is describing here, because how quickly we can improve the air quality and how quickly you know we can reach these and these improved air quality levels will also impact how quickly you know or how much you will get in climate core benefits. So, so we are somehow tailoring that. We are into that process now. An additional element is that, you know, we also see if we, if we estimate that you can have so and so much climate co-benefits from implementation of what you are doing now, let's say up to 2030 or 2040, we also try, you know, to use as an argument that if you added certain investment from a climate perspective, you could also, you know, increase the total benefit, both on the air quality side and the climate side. So we, we are into really these discussions now. One of the responsibilities we as an institution have is to develop the so-called climate change development reports that we defer, refer to as the CCDRs. 
and we are building in these co-benefit scenarios also into these reports for each of the countries in South Asia. And we hope that the India report will be extensive on this. So it's very much on our agenda and we see good perspectives there. With respect to like the funding put towards combating uh, climate change and pollution and the research that surrounds it and studies and findings around it, do you think that the issue of air pollution gets like much attention at big events like the COPs? Or do you think it deserves a COP equivalent international or multilateral conference of its own? The conference of the parties or the climate convention, the Kyoto Protocol is really important yearly events. You have all the countries participating. You have a lot of, of course, politician, decision makers, representatives there. So it's important. It's very important. And, and we acknowledge that bringing in air quality management and the possible we just had discussed, the climate co-benefits from air quality is critical. In, the, in these contexts. And that is also why we try to plan also for more substantive presentations of the climate co-benefit opportunities in, for example, the upcoming COP, like COP28 later this year. So we see good opportunities there. But at the same time, to your question, could more have been done? Is it a full acknowledgement? No, we believe that much more should be done and that there is not a sufficient understanding of the climate co-benefits today. And I think there are several reasons to this. And one is also, you know, the, the largest benefit probably, as also described by Asayan Tan, is in what we are referring to as the short-lived climate pollutants, particularly black carbon and methane. And in the original Kyoto Protocol, black carbon was not included, you know, as, as some of the climate gases. So we have somehow had to, you know, get this gradually included. And in the um, research done by the parties in the, in the continued updates, it's gradually getting in. But it's, you know, a little bit secondary to the traditional greenhouse gases. But I think that we just need to work continuously, align with the development partners. We have, you know, we are working with several of them, particularly the bilateral, but also other um, international multilateral partners to continuously work on getting also the short-lived climate pollutants on the agenda. And you may recall that at the last COP, it was a strong drive for getting this 30% pledge of methane reduction and getting countries, member countries, pledging to the methane reduction. And if you just take methane as an example, as Sayantan described, up to 2030, 2040, if you have full implementation of the ambient air quality management programs, you can actually get a reduction in methane by perhaps 20, 25% and so on. 
through just implementation, full implementation of the air quality management plans. So the countries can actually, through just implementation of the air quality management actions, meet most of their methane pledge. And I don't think that is fully understood. You know, when we talk with the countries in the region, we don't get the impression that they have been through that thinking process or how much impact an implementation of a solid air quality management plan can have on climate co-benefits. So yeah, continue to work, get this further announced in form, arranging events at the COPs, but I think also we need to your question. I think we need additional processes, mm. additional yeah. events in the South Asia. We, if we take South Asia here as an example, yeah. and and yeah. and and somehow moving further on on the vision that we refer to for 2030, getting this hopefully more formalized, and 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 so on, and continuously arrange events that help us bringing this forward. And we have a start that I think also Sayantan referred to that we have a Kathmandu roadmap that we signed with the four countries in the Indo-Gandhitic plain, India, Pakistan, Nepal, and Bangladesh, where we will work together in bringing the countries together. And we'll probably add Bhutan there, so there are five countries in the Indo-Gandhitic plain area, where we work on bringing the countries together in, in air quality management and also work further on the climate co-benefits. So, and the, the critical concept there that we also want to play out, that is air quality management diplomacy. And what we realize is that there's a lot of gains by being diplomatic and bring the countries together through diplomatic means we can achieve a lot in air quality management. I think what is the goal, right? I mean, what is the goal of a COP, for example, and what would it do for the air quality agenda? I think there are two key issues there, right? One is to draw sort of the public attention on this issue, and it provides really a good opportunity to sort of infuse further investments into the segment, right, into the sector. And secondly, I think uh, what this COPs actually allow is to countries and subnational governments to have an opportunity to have a dialogue with other like-minded countries, for example, and to learn of experiences. So I think it's really important to have sort of some sort of a forum to do this. Uh, air quality at the global level, unfortunately, we do not have a separate forum uh, altogether like this, but there have been good, uh, good experiences with regional conventions, like, for example, the Convention on Long-Range Transport on air of Air Pollutants, uh, which we described earlier as sort of being the convention that governs air quality in the European re Union region, but also is now adding uh, geographies in North America uh, to it, I think provides a good opportunity to have sort of uh, dialogue and exchange between sort of policymakers and scientists uh, to understand the emerging trend in research and implementation of measures as well. For the South Asia region in particular, since we're focusing on this region, 
Uh, we had the Mali Declaration, actually, which was brought in in the 1990s that brought together countries from South Asia on a common platform to have deliberations on air quality management. So there has been a process that has been initiated. It's a process that has been kind of a little stalled, I think, in the last few years. And, and there, I think, is an important opportunity that arises now in terms of building such platforms, such dialogues where countries can come together and discuss this issue of Asian management, share implementation experiences, financing experiences, et cetera, and, and learn of learn from that and make that make sort of use of sort of that additional knowledge and expertise that they would be exposed to. It was an absolute honor hearing from two representatives of the World Bank. Priceless insight for all of us, for our listeners, for us as IR students. Just to end off on a slightly well, we ended on an optimistic note with this last question, but just to get your take on what the World Bank as an institution is doing in this area of air quality management. So are there any positive steps that have been taken by the World Bank, apart from obviously the issuing of this report that you would like to highlight? And on the flip side, what more do you think it can do as an institution? Uh, any ideas that you think the World Bank could, uh, any challenges the World Bank could target, in your opinion? Yeah, no, thank you. And, I, you know, over institution, the World Bank, is basically we, we try to operate in two ways. On, on one hand, as what we are referring to as a knowledge bank, where we generate knowledge, share knowledge, and work on knowledge development in, in over client countries. And the other you know, is the traditional investment bank function, providing investments as, 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 as we have described it. So, what we try to do, you know, is to walk on two legs here and, and provide the best we can of assistance, both on the knowledge side and the investment side. And if we take the first side on knowledge side, one thing I have learned working in this region some years now is that it's a very knowledgeable region. There's a lot of wisdom here. It's, it's a lot of experience knowledge among over counterparts that has to lift the agenda in the region so we somehow have to continuously provide this advice and and a critical part of this is to develop and establish the knowledge institutions that can do what we are referring to as scientific air quality management that we build up these capacities and that we are supporting them in developing very solid plans for air quality, both at the state level and at the regional level, where they integrate, you know, as we have said, these city plans they already have been working on into that larger context. So working on these plans, working on the policies, working on developing the knowledge institutions, that's a critical function. I would say that's probably 50% of what we are doing and to make these mindset shifts of the counterparts we have, not at least, not at least, you know, the, the, the decision makers and the policy makers in, in the various departments. So that's one thing. The second, on the lending side, as I referred to, we have basically this mechanism that we refer to as payment for results. And we see this is a very good mechanism to apply in air quality management because we can support what they have our plans and we can support them in achieving 
the plans and reaching the targets they have and so on. So it's to continuously support that mechanism. I re an interrelated thing where we still really would like to come in is related to what we refer to as the what do we do with the low income areas? Because India has graduated from what we are referring to as an IDA client. So they don't obtain the lowest uh, funds that we provide to other countries like we do to Nepal and Bangladesh for the time being, Pakistan. We want to come in with what we are referring to as concessional funding to counterbalance that we can provide this additional funding into the low income areas. But we still have a long way to go to obtain these funding mechanisms. But that is some of the perspective we have to back. We will be in this to at least 2030. We, we will work energetically here uh, over the next seven, eight years to try to lift and support the lifting of the agenda. Absolutely. And we think it's feasible.